All right, Colossians chapter 1. Now, here's what we're going to do. This is a little different, okay? So, back in verse 11 and 12, um, I, I, I hated that we skipped over something that I wanted to talk about. And so, the same theme came up again in verses 21, 22, and 23. So, what we're going to do is we're going to join those together, okay? So, I, I, I know we... we, we Spent last week on the kind of the portion in between, but we're gonna we're gonna bridge that gap, and so we'll have sort of two passages today. So stand to your feet. We do that in this service, and uh, in honor of the reading of God's word, and I will read verses 11 and 12, and then we're gonna jump to verses 21, 22, and 23. So beginning in Colossians 1 verse 11, this is a prayer. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, go to verses 21, 22, and 23. Same chapter. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for your reconciling work through Jesus Christ. On our behalf. Father there are so many things. That make us want to quit. That cause us to get discouraged. And want to give up. And I pray that through your word. And I pray that through the power of your spirit. Through this prayer. That we're offering to you even. That you would answer this. And that you would give us endurance. That you would give us patience. That you would give us the ability to be steadfast and to continue in the faith and not to shift our hope from the glorious gospel. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at the passage that's sandwiched in between those two passages that I read. And basically what we learned in that passage is that God has made Jesus first. Okay? So you didn't get a vote on it. Nobody did. That's okay. God has just decided that he is going to make Jesus Christ the preeminent one. He is first. He is supreme. Okay. What we learned last week is that everything that's created, created by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, and for Jesus Christ. Okay. So everything that's created, every mountain, every tree, every ladybug, every, every thistle, everything is created for the glory of Jesus Christ, all that exists. Now, one way to summarize last week's sermon might be this. Life is from Jesus. Life is about Jesus. Okay, did you get that? Life is from Jesus, and life is about Jesus. Now, it's up to you whether or not you're going to live that way. But let, let me just say this, and we said this last week, to live any other way. For you to live saying, life's about me, for you to live saying life's about my desires, life's about my, my priorities, my, my whatever. You can live that way, but it's a lie. You can live that way, but it's make-believe. It's not the reality. The reality is, is that life is from Jesus and life is about Jesus. 
Now, as Paul moves into this next section, he is describing for us what Jesus does on our behalf to bring us to God the Father. And he does that mainly through this key word that is called reconciliation. Okay, so if you look in verse 22, it actually occurs in verse 20 as well. But in verse 22 in our text, it says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, you might be thinking, what, what is that word reconciled? What is the work of Jesus in reconciling? Well, in order to understand that, you've got to know what's wrong with us. Okay, that, that, that's true in, in, in all of the work of Jesus. It doesn't make sense unless you know what's wrong with us. Okay, now, so what is wrong with us? Well, the Bible presents that in a lot of different ways, actually. The Bible says you're a transgressor. You're a lawbreaker. Did you know that? You've broken God's laws. And so the work of Jesus Christ on the cross brings justification. You know what justification is? It's making the lawbreaker righteous, okay? The, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, you're dead in your transgressions. You're spiritually dead. So through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, guess what? He makes you alive. The Bible says you're a sinner. So through the work of Jesus, he brings about forgiveness. The Bible says you're a slave to sin. So through the work of Jesus, he brings about redemption, okay? So do you see how what's wrong with us? you got to know that before you can understand what Jesus is doing in his work on the cross. Now, this morning, he says about us, you are alienated from God. So in verse 21, he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. Now, the word alienated is a relational word. It's a word that means to be estranged. Okay? Man, I hope not, but, I, but I'm just guessing that in your family history, you have had seasons or times, or maybe still do right now, when you had people in your family that were estranged from one another, that were alienated from one another. That's a sad thing, but it happens all the time in families. But, 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 I, bet, but I, bet, I bet you know what I'm talking about, right? You, you understand what that word means. It means to be shut out, to be excluded. It means there's a wall, and, and, and there's no relationship happening, usually because of an offense, right? I remember about a decade ago, um, I, uh, I, I did what I really felt was right. Um, I was part of a group of guys, and we, we, we really felt like we were following the Lord. I still think we were. And, but, but in doing what we thought was right, we really offended a family. And that family was alienated from me for a time. We were estranged for a time. Um, they would not talk to me. Uh, they actually would not look at me. Um, I, I had this really embarrassing public moment where uh, we were in kind of a public setting, and I came up and I, I said, hello. I said, hey, how are you guys doing? And I stuck out my hand to shake their hand. And have you ever been left hanging like that? Like, like sometimes that happens in the greeting because somebody, you ever have people steal your handshake? You go in and Fred comes right in and takes it away, you know, and gets it first. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like you walk up to the person, they see who you are, and they turn away and they won't shake your hand, you know? I mean, it, it's an, if you've ever had that, it's awkward because what do you do with your hand, you know? Do you just leave it there, like kind of try to hold them out, you know? Or I, I never know, you know? Or do you act like you were doing something else, like, darn gnats, you know, or, you know, or do you John Travolta, you know, maybe just, you know, moves, or what do you do? I, I don't know. Shake your own hand. That's an idea, you know, but it's awkward, but, but there's a, a relational estrangement, okay? The Bible is telling us, by the way, that family and I are completely reconciled and have a great relationship to this day. God did a great work there, but, but listen, 
The Bible says you're alienated from God. Okay, you're alienated from him. You, you're, you're in fact, it says you're hostile in mind. Did, did you see that in verse 21? And you who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, I really believe I could say that to a lot of people in our culture and they would disagree. Whenever I say, listen, you're, you're, you're separated from God. You are shut off from a relationship with God. You're at odds with God. And in fact, the Bible says you are hostile. You are hateful to him in your, in your thinking. I think a lot of people would argue. They would say, no, I'm not. And they would tell me, I've had people tell me this. From the time I was a little kid, I've had nothing but good feelings toward God. Me and God were great. Well, here's, here's the funny thing about that. You see, I, I really believe there's a lot of folks in our culture that absolutely believe that. Like they, they believe, they have all good feelings toward God, but the reality is they're not good with God. Like there's a broken relationship. Okay, now, now one, one of the big reasons why a lot of people think they're good with God, but they aren't really good with God, is last week's sermon. Jesus is preeminent. So everything in life is about Him. Everything in life is for Him. Everything in life is by Him. Everything in life is sustained at His Word. All right? Now, now, if that's the reality, then for us to live another way, remember the example we had last week? You know, if, if you're trying to live saying you're the main thing, basically you're trying to scoot Jesus off the throne. That's a hostile thing. That's a hostile move. Imagine going to Bonnie's birthday party, okay? So it's Bonnie's birthday. Kenny throws her a big party at her house. You know, you go over there. There's all kinds of people. All, many of you are there at the party. And, and imagine you going up and with with good intention in your heart. Like, like you're just like, I love Bonnie. She's so great. And you're talking to somebody else. And you're saying, man, I just love Bonnie. But while you're up there at the cake, you're scraping her name off. And you're putting your name, yeah, you know, Jason on the cake. You know, but while you're doing it, you're like, oh, me and Bonnie are great. We've had such good times together. I just love her, her worship leading everything. Jason on the cake, you know. And then it's time to sing happy birthday. And everybody's like, you know, happy birthday. And you come over and you kind of stand right in front of her, you know, and you're like this, you know. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Happy birthday. And when it gets time to happy birthday, dear, and you like yell out, Jason, you know, your name, right? You know, instead of Bonnie, you know, happy birthday. And then afterward, everybody's clapping. And you're like, thanks, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, and immediately you go over to the table and there's all these presents on the table. They all say, Bonnie, 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 Bonnie. And you start tearing into them. You're like, oh, this is just what I wanted. Thank you, thank you, guys. You guys are so sweet. Such good friends. Okay. Now listen, I, you can have the greatest intentions of the world toward Bonnie, but you're, you're hostile. Does that make sense? That's an offensive move. Every one of us has done exactly that to Jesus. This whole thing's about Jesus. But how often have you lived like it's about you? How often did you throw a big temper tantrum because life didn't go your way? How often did you demand that people cater to you because you felt like you're the main thing? It's exactly what we're doing. So when the Bible says that we're hostile to God, that we're alienated from God, it, it's being serious, like you really are. And so the only answer for that is for you to be reconciled to him. That's the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, here's a really cool thing. You would think that the offenders would be the ones that seek reconciliation, right? Like when, when you do something to hurt somebody, you probably should go, right? And, 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 and seek reconciliation. That's not the way it happens in the Bible. You, you see, a lot of folks will think, man, they'll, they'll think they're almost a saint if somebody has offended them. And if that person comes to them on their knees, crawling, 
And they lay prostrate before him and grab hold of their shoe and pet it and say, I'm so sorry for everything I've ever done. Please, 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 please forgive me. And then you're like, okay, I'll forgive you. You know, we all feel like, man, I've done a great thing, okay? It's the other way around. Like, we're the offenders and God comes after us. He initiates the reconciliation. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, listen, listen to this. This is a beautiful passage. Verse 19. That is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you. That's the word that means to beg. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. God sends out the reconciliation party. We've offended him. We've ignored him. We've slighted him. And he sends the reconciliation party after us. God is doing a work of reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Now, in that work of reconciliation, notice what it says. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. God reconciles by sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins to take away the offense. Did you hear that? To take away the offense. Man, how cool would it be if you could do that? You know, you can't, but how cool would it be? You know, you go to that family reunion and there's, you know, Uncle Bob and there's Aunt Sue and they've been at odds since 1922, you know, when, uh, when they were going to go to the dance at school when they were 17 and, and Aunt Sue came out in the dress that she'd spent a month making and Uncle Bob said, man, you look ridiculous, you know, and it's, it's on since then, right? Like they've not spent Christmas together, they've not spoken to each other, they've, you know, sold up and divided up the farm so that they didn't have to beat it, you know. And how cool would it be if you go to a family reunion and you were able to somehow reach back into time at that very moment and Uncle Bob was about to say, you look ridiculous, you know. How cool would it be to snap his jaw shut, you know, and then he doesn't say it. Like he doesn't ever say it, you know. He just mumbles, you know. And she's like, I don't know what he's saying. Anyway, and, and, and all of a sudden the offense is taken away. And now you fast forward and you go back to the family reunion and there's this harmony. And then the family is together. And there, there's, no, there's no animosity. There's no estrangement. There's no, how cool would it be to be able to take away offenses? Well, unfortunately, you can't go back in time. Not yet, unless one of you invented a time machine, but not that I know of, okay? But what did happen was Jesus Christ on the cross took your offense against God and he paid for it. He settled it. Isn't that awesome? So that there is no longer any offense. Oh, man, that's incredible. That Christ on the cross through his own body would take away the offense so now there can be reconciliation between us and God. Now, to what end? Okay, we're going to kind of move fast here. So we're reconciled through Jesus Christ to God. Why? To what end? Read in your Bible. Are you ready? Verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to, here we go, present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what is God doing in this act of reconciliation? What is Jesus accomplishing in this act of reconciliation? What he's accomplishing is he's going to present you to God and you're going to be holy and you're going to be blameless and you're going to be above reproach. Okay, above reproach means 
without accusation. All right? That's what God is doing. Now, some of you, you're, you, you've got a systematic theology book, and so you've read a little bit, and, and, and you're like, okay, pastor, i got a big question. This is a big question. Is Paul talking about imputed righteousness, or is he talking about practical righteousness? All right, now that, that's actually a great question. Let me unpack what those two things mean so we can all, we're all hopefully on the same page, okay? So what that question is about is imputed righteousness is the righteousness that Jesus puts in your account when you are born again, okay? So whenever you turn away from sin and put your faith in Jesus, you're joined to him, his sin goes where? Or I'm sorry, your sin goes where? On the cross, right? Jesus bears it. He bears it in his own body on the cross and he pays for it. Jesus' righteousness, all the righteous things he has done, that goes where? That goes into you. You have, a, you have an account transfer. What was it, Addie? About a week ago or so, Addie called me and said, Hey, Dad, they, they sent out a letter. Or I found out that I can't enroll for next year until I have this year's account balance paid off. And, and I'd really like to do that today. Okay, so we've got this cool thing that we can do now where I just go online to my bank, right? And I put in all my information, and, and, and there I'm able to go up to transfer of funds, okay? And I go to my account, and, and I type in the amount of money that Addie needs to, to pay off her balance, and then I type in her account, and I hit the little send button or whatever, transfer, and you know what happens? What was my money goes into her account, and now it's hers. And so she's standing there with her debit card, and now the money she didn't have before, she now has, swipes it, and it's done, right? How awesome, unless you're dad, and then not so much. But, no, it is. No, it's good. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying, though? That's what happened with you on the cross. Do you understand that? Whenever, like, like, here's what I'm afraid. I'm afraid because I talk to people all the time. I talk to somebody this week. They don't understand that. They're still thinking Christianity is about, I got to go do some good things so that I get more good things in my account than bad things. You're going to go to hell. I mean, I, I hate to say it that firm, but I've got to because you're in trouble. You'll ne- you'll, you, can't, you can't do enough good things. The only way for you to be righteous is what, what we're talking about, Christ-imputed righteousness. That's when you turn away from your sin, but you put your faith in Christ, His righteousness whew, into your account. Now you are holy, blameless, righteous before Him. Okay, but the Bible also talks about practical righteousness now what is practical righteousness well once you have imputed righteousness guess what god guess what else god puts in you his holy spirit and let me tell you you talk about a worker okay he doesn't take breaks he doesn't take holidays he's not lazy he doesn't get tired and he doesn't sleep and you know what he's going to be doing in you he's going to be producing in you the life and character of jesus you know what we call it fruit Okay? He's going to be bearing fruit in you. So, so the practical works of righteousness, that's when you're driving down your street and the neighbor that offended you last month, he's trying to load his lawnmower in his back, into the back of his truck and you pull over real quick and you jump out and you're like, hey, buddy, neighbor, can I help you? And you help him load his, his mower up there and you end up sticking around and talking for 20 minutes and he shares about how his wife's been really sick and you put your arm around him and you pray for him right there. That is a practical work of righteousness. That's the Holy Spirit working out of you the character and life of Jesus. That's what we call the practical deeds of righteousness. Okay, so back up. So when Paul says, 
Jesus is reconciling you to God in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach, which of those does he mean? Well, here's my answer. That's silly. Both. Both. You know why? Because you can't have one without the other. Right? If you, if you have the imputed righteousness of Jesus, you're going to bear fruit because you've got the Holy Spirit. You've got Christ in you. Okay? Some will bear more fruit than others. Absolutely true. But you're going to bear some fruit. Now, if you're bearing the practical works of Jesus, if you're bearing fruit, then that means you've got his imputed righteousness. Because otherwise, you can't, you can't bear the works of Jesus and not have his righteousness. Because if you don't have his righteousness, you're not saved. You're not born again. You're not connected to Christ. Okay? So it's both of those. So, so both, both he's going to present us righteous in Jesus, and then he's also going to hold up. This is going to happen at the judgment day, by the way. He's going to hold up your life as an example of, as, a, as evidence that the Spirit of God was in you. You believe that? I can, I can prove that to you. Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, it's the judgment day, man. God is separating believers from unbelievers. And here's what he says to the believers. And he says a similar thing to the unbelievers, except it goes the other way. But he says to the believers in verse 34 of chapter 25, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come! You, who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when? They're trying to think, when did I see Jesus? How did that happen? I don't remember seeing him. Here's the answer. Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty, give you drink? When we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, this is verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, on the judgment day, you're, the only way you're saved is by the righteousness of Jesus in your account. But on that day, your life is also going to be on display. And, and God is going to show, look, this one's mine because you can see all these practical works of Jesus that were worked out of their life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's both those. It's both those. That's why you are reconciled to Jesus Christ. Now, the next word is scary. Okay? Are you ready to be scared? It's scary. It really is. Verse 23. First word of 23. If. Now, some of your Bibles may have translated since. I think they're on to something there. Um, in, in the Greek, though, it could go either way, and so that's why a lot of Bibles like mine leave it if, and so you get to translate it, okay? But if is a scary word. Do you see what it says? If indeed you continue, okay? So you're reconciled to God. You're going to be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach if you continue in the faith, if you're stable and steadfast, if you don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You know what that's saying? That's saying you'll be presented before God holy, blameless, and righteous unless you give up. Unless you, unless you quit. Unless you stop running. Unless you, unless you don't continue. You don't persevere. Okay, now, we got a lot of problems to deal with now, don't we, huh? Right? I love to make problems and then solve them, all right? So, so what, what is he talking about if? Let's give option number one, okay? So option number one is, is that basically Paul is saying that 
that if you're a born-again believer and you're joined to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in you and you got Christ's righteousness and you're bearing fruit, but you come to a point in your life where you go through trials, struggles, temptations, whatever, sin gets a hold of you, and then you quit. You quit walking in faith. You quit obeying. You quit. Then that means that God reaches down inside of you, pulls out his righteousness, puts your sin back in there, and then he goes over and takes the Holy Spirit, pulls him out, he takes away your inheritance. He disconnects you and separates you from Jesus. There are folks that believe that's what he's saying there. I do not, okay? Here's the reason I don't, okay? If the question is, if you're a true believer, can you ever be separated from Christ? Let's let the Bible answer that. In fact, let's let the guy who wrote Colossians answer that, okay? He answers that in Romans chapter 8. So the question is, who can be separated from the love of Christ? All right, let's, let's answer that in Romans chapter 8. Are you ready? Verse 35 is we're going to start. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's the question. Shall tribulation, that's hard times, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written for, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, in all these things, there's the answer. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, I'm certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think he answered it, did he not? Would you like another opinion? How about, how about the Apostle John? Uh, no, whoa, whoa. How about Jesus? That's even better. John 10, 27. Here's what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. All right, if Jesus gives you eternal life, and there's a point in time where you fall away, and you stop trusting, and you stop believing, and you stop serving, and you stop continuing in the faith, and you don't have eternal life anymore, then what did Jesus give you? If he gave you eternal life, but there's a time where you don't have it, then what did he give you? He didn't give you eternal life. He gave you something else. He gave you temporary life, right? Let's keep reading. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. What does never perish mean? Never perish, right? Never perish. They're never going to perish. They're, ne they're never going to turn away. Okay, so here's what, we, here's what we believe Paul is saying here. He is saying... That the reality of a true believer is they will persevere. They will endure. You know what that means? If you're here today and you're connected to Jesus Christ, I know this about you. I know this about you. You won't quit. You, 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 won't, you won't stop. You won't stop believing. You won't, you won't turn away. You won't fall away. Okay? Now, will you go through hard times? Absolutely. Will you go through struggles? Will you want to quit? probably a million times in your Christian life. Will you have to have the Word of God come in and punch you in the gut? Probably. Will you have to have believers come to your house and speak truth into your life? Yes, probably. Okay, but here's the reality. God will work through the Holy Spirit to keep you believing. That's what verse 23 says. If indeed you continue in the faith, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What he's saying is every true believer will not shift their hope away from the gospel. They'll keep believing that Jesus is the best thing, that Jesus is the resurrection, that nothing done for him is in vain, that he is the satisfier of our souls. They will keep believing that. 
And so now you're going to ask me, well, whoa, pastor, what about those folks that do give up? Now, who are we talking about here? Well, let's just name somebody that everybody, all of us know. How about, how about that Judas dude? Huh? He didn't continue. Well, if you go back and read that passage, we don't have time to read that passage, but if you go back and read that passage, what, what Jesus says of him is he was never with us to begin with. All right? John, the back of your Bible, John is uh, pastoring a church. He's uh, writing to this church he's pastoring. And you know what? He's got some folks in his church that, man, they were, with, they were in there for a while. They were serving. They were loving. They were giving. They were going great guns. But you know what happened? They peeled off, and they stopped, and they gave up, and they quit. So what does John say about them? Let me read it. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. What did Paul say in our passage? Those who continue in the faith. They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. All right, so, so what are we learning here? We're learning here that part of being a believer, part of being connected to Jesus, the evidence of that is that you will continue. You won't give up. You won't quit. You'll continue in the faith. All right? Now, how, how should we apply that? Should we apply that by, oh, man, thank goodness, I'm a true believer. So, man, Holy Spirit's got this locked up, so I'm just going to sit down and rest. I'm going to quit, and he's going to do it all for me. Well, no, you know what you, you just did? You probably showed yourself not to be a true believer, okay? Because you won't do that. All right, you, 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 you won't quit. Even though there's going to be a million things in your life that make you want to. What am I talking about there? Well, John 16, says, In this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 2 Timothy three twelve says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I talked to Solomon yesterday. Man, he cannot get our our friends in India, out of jail. They arrested them, I think, three weeks ago. Um, there's, uh, of them, there's 11 mothers. Some of them are nursing mothers, and they will not let them out of jail. Um, they've abused the pastor. They won't let him out. Uh, Solomon's been three times, I think. He's taken delegations of people from Hyderabad trying to get them out, and they will not let them out thus far. Is that a surprise? Well, it just said it, didn't it? Second Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There's going to be a multitude and a variety of things in your life that are going to make it hard for you to continue. Man, Jesus said that from the beginning. Do you remember the illustration he gave us about, about um, the two roads? Remember that? Like, like there's, there's, there's one road and it says, Jesus says, hey, this is the road of life. You know, and there's another that the world says, no, no, this is life. Well, you know, when you head down that road that, that Jesus said is life, you know what you encounter right away? Rocks and limbs and it gets narrow and, and there's a cliff and right away in the first quarter mile, there's this steep hill. And man, you get three quarters of the way up there and you're using your inhaler, you know, and, and man, it, your, your chest is burning. And, and what, do you, what do you start to think? Man, maybe, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe I ought to just stop. Maybe I ought to just sit here. Maybe I ought to just quit Jesus said in Matthew 7 enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few 
my friends, as believers, we will not give up. We will continue. We'll continue. When, when, whenever, whenever we begin to peel off, if you're a believer, you know it because the Holy Spirit gets all after you. He disciplines you, does He not? He spanks you. He convicts you. He draws you back in the line. Because you must persevere to the end. And by the way, it's amazing what can be accomplished with steadfast effort. I was talking to a guy the other day, and I, I, don't, I don't know if he's a true believer. I kind of doubt it, actually. But I've known him for 20 years. And man, he'll have these spurts, you know, where he's like all on fire for Jesus, you know. On fire for Jesus. Serving, serving. I want to get involved. I want to get plugged in, you know. And just as about, we're about to get all that done, whoo, crash, you know. And he's out. I don't see him forever. And then climbing up again, you know. Man. Here's what I told him. I said, buddy, you have no idea what God would do through and in you if you just walked in the same direction, step after step. Just, you don't have to be fast. That's true, isn't it? In the Christian life, you don't got to be a sprinter. I tell you what, if, if every day you just get up and you're consistent in your prayer, you're consistent in your Bible reading, you're consistent in wanting to share truth, you're consistent in asking the Holy Spirit to use you, you're consistent in doing good. Man, God will do great things. Canyons are formed out of rock by a steady stream of water. Marathons are run by simply putting one foot in front of the other and keep doing that for a long time. Hardened sinners are softened by the gospel by persistent prayers of people who love them. Godly children are trained and raised up for a lifetime of godliness by patient, persistent parents giving effort to their character. We can't give up. That's, that's what he's telling us. Now, how? How are we going to do that? All right, now jump back to verse 11 and 12, okay? We're going to get a little how-to here, okay? So first of all, what we learn about this is it is perfectly appropriate to pray for endurance and patience, okay? It, you should do that. Paul does that. He does that for the church here. Verse 11, he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. The word endurance is a word that means to carry a heavy load, to bear up under difficult circumstances. And the word patience means to bear up under difficult people. It's used mostly for relationships, conflict, hard people, struggling, you know, difficult situations with people. And here's what Paul does. He says, God, I pray you give us strength to handle that. Have you ever thought about when you're impatient? John Piper taught me this. When you're impatient, it's a lack of strength. We don't usually think of it that way, do we? You know, whenever things aren't going right with your day, like, and everything's going, you know, your schedule gets all messed up, people interfere, you know, the kids don't do what they're supposed to do, and you're like, ah! You know what that is? That's simply weakness. Like, I just, I need to pray, God, God, strengthen me. I need strength to be patient. I need strength to, to overcome the circumstances of my life right now and to keep moving forward in faith. I, I know we're about done. I lost my watch again. I don't know why that happens, but it's bad, bad for you. But why, why, why when he prays in verse 11 and 12, don't, don't shut down, because this is, this is the best part, okay? Why when he prays in verse 11 and 12, may he be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, why does he add with joy and thanksgiving? 
Why would joy and thanksgiving? You know why? Because those are absolutely crucial to you not quitting, to you not giving up, to you persevering. Man, I'm telling you, you know what Nehemiah 8.10 says? It says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I, I, I have experienced that a million times in my Christian life. Think about it this way. So if all you're looking at is your circumstances, all you're looking at is the wildfire came through and burned down everything you had. All you're looking at is your family is sick continually. All you're looking at is your finances are in the tank. All you're looking at is you got conflict and hardship in your life. All you're looking at is you've been falsely accused and abused by others. If that's all you're looking at, you know what you want to do? You want to quit, right? You want to quit the Christian life. You want, to, you want to not try anymore. I mean, that's just in all of us. But you know what you need to do? You need to pull that screen away, and you need to see the other reality, and that is that Jesus Christ has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul does this better than anybody. Would you bear with me? Just, just hang with me here. 2 Corinthians 6. So he does this really cool thing in 2 Corinthians 6. He, he, he talks about what everybody else sees in his life, but then he talks about the spiritual reality. Okay? So, so listen to this. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, this is verse 8, we are treated as impostors. You know what that means? Everybody around him thinks he's a fraud. He's a fake. He's a phony. We're treated as impostors, yet we're true. Verse 9. As unknown. Paul's a nobody in the world. Yet well known. With who? With God. Right? As dying. That's his physical body. Yet behold, we live. As punished, yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing all things. you see what he's doing there? In the midst of hard times, in the midst of people calling him a fake and a fraud and a phony and in the midst of poverty and sickness and ill health, Paul pulls the curtain back and he says, yeah, but we are known by God. We are loved by God. We are true in the gospel. We are alive in Christ. We are rich in the, in the heavenly. We possess all things. You see what he's doing? Paul is grabbing on joy in the Lord. He's grabbing into thankfulness in the Lord. And he's battling to persevere with those weapons. A little confession time. One of the reasons I want to come back to this verse is because I have struggled more with joy in the Lord in the last two months than I have my entire life, my Christian life. Now, why? I do not know. I don't know. There's nothing that's happened. My wife's not mean to me. Um, you guys are great. Ch- I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But, but here's, here's what I know. I have fought that, and I've fought successfully. And, and I have fought for joy. But I have to fight. Um, every, everybody's born with a certain natural propensity for joy, right? Like some people are just kind of naturally negative. Some are naturally positive. Some people are born, they come out of the womb, you know, they, they open up their eyes and they're like, this hospital, great, dad, great, you know. Some people come out of the womb and they're like, wow, I got to be born in a hospital. I'm one of those that kind of come out of the womb, wow. You know, I mean, I just, I'm naturally pretty happy. I'm naturally, and so how much more if you're the other? But, but listen, 
even though that's kind of my natural propensity, I've had to fight for these last two months to be joyful in the Lord. You know where that comes out most often? Serving others. Um, bearing fruit. You know, normally I'm driving down the street and I see somebody, I'm like, hey, I wonder if they want to hear the gospel, you know? These last couple weeks, you know what I've had to do? I'm driving down the street and I'm like, uh, I don't want to see them, you know? And then, you know what I've had to do? I've had to fight for joy. See, my problem there is joy. And so I've had to take these verses we're memorizing and I've had to use them. That delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Dude, I've used that. Maybe you just memorized it this week. I used it this week. I, I would realize my heart was not happy in Christ and I would grab onto that verse and I would command my heart to be joyful in the Lord. And then I'd, then I'd be happy about what I was doing. Folks, that's the way most of our life's going to be. Sorry to tell you that. But if, if we're going to have to endure, we're going to have to persevere. If you don't, you're not the real deal. And in order to persevere and in order to endure, you're going to have to be joyful in the Lord. You're going to have to believe all that Christ has done on your behalf. So let's pray and let's ask, let's ask God to do exactly what Paul asked him to do, okay? We're going to do that. Father, right now, we, uh, we want to echo what we read in Colossians 1. Father, we're, we're getting this prayer right out of your word. It comes right from the lips of the Apostle Paul. So, God, we believe it is absolutely what you want for us this morning. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts for all endurance. God, we pray that you would give us the ability to endure under difficult circumstances. Give us the ability to keep praying, to keep loving kids in the gospel on Wednesdays, to keep making disciples, to keep going to small groups, to keep um, speaking truth to others. God, give us the ability to do that under difficult circumstances. Father, we pray that you give us all patience. God, we ask you to give us the ability to endure with difficult people. God, when people let us down, when they hurt us, when they offend us, when they aren't there for us, God, we pray that you would give us the inner strength to keep loving, serving, giving, rejoicing, praising, worshiping, even when people let us down. We pray, Father, that you would give us all joy in the Lord, that you would give us all thanksgiving, thankful hearts, Father. God, that we might make it to the end. God, I pray for every saint in this room that they would persevere, that they would not quit, that they would not give up, that they would continue in the faith. Father, we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.